Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Serial Killer Podcast, the podcast dedicated to serial killers, who they were, what they did, and how. Episode 158. I am your Norwegian host, Thomas Rosaland Weiborg Thun. Some killers goes largely under the public's radar. Some killers get famous. Some don't. On this show, I make it my business to cover both categories. But did you, dear listener, know that there is a third category? Yes, indeed. Because some killers remain largely anonymous, but for some reason their crimes are a part of the public's consciousness, and those who follow through crime are familiar with aspects of the crimes even though they are not familiar with the actual killer. Tonight's saga is one of those cases. You see, if you are like me and peruse the World Wide Web for true crime regularly, photos of crime scenes are a staple of true crime. Especially fascinating is, of course, photos of victims taken by serial killers themselves. The latter is somewhat rare, but there are quite a few of them available. Three photos stand out that are relevant to tonight's dark tale. One features a gorgeous brunette sitting in a fashionable short dress outside in the sunlight. Her mouth is gagged, and her hands are bound behind her back. She has a terrified expression on her face. The other 
is of an equally gorgeous blonde young woman. She is dressed in a modest sweater and skirt, and is sitting on an easy chair inside what appears to be a living room. Her legs are tied together, and her arms are apparently bound behind her. She, too, has her mouth gagged. She looks towards something, probably a someone with a look of apprehension. The third photo is pornographic in nature. It features the same girl as in the second photo, but instead of a modest sweater and skirt, she is only clad in panties. She is fastened to a BDSM X-shaped cross standing upright. She is gagged and appears unconscious. All photos are taken by Harvey Glattman, the glamour girl slayer, right before the subjects in the photos were murdered. This episode is a longer episode than usual, harking back to the classic TSK standalone episodes as some of my dear listeners have requested. Enjoy. As always, I want to publicly thank my elite TSK Producers Club. Their names are Andrea, Boo, Cassandra, Chris, Christy, Cody, Connor, Corbin, Fawn, Gilly, James G, James H, James S, Jared, Jennifer, Johnny, Juliet, Kathy, Kevin, Kylie, Lisa, Lisbeth, Madeline, Meow, Nick, Operation BP, Robert, Russell, Sabina, Samira, Scortnia, Shauna, Ted, Tim, Tony, Trent, and Val. You are the backbone of the Serial Killer Podcast, and without you, there would be no show. You have my deepest gratitude. Thank you. I am forever grateful for my elite TSK Producers Club, and I want to show you that your patronage is not given in vain. As mentioned in the last episode, going forward, all TSK episodes will be available 100% ad-free to my TSK Producers Club on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast. No generic ads, no ad reads, no jingles. I promise. And of course, if you wish to donate $15 a month, that's only $7.50 per episode, you are more than welcome to join the ranks of the TSK Producers Club too. So don't miss out and join now. Harvey Murray Glattman was born on the 10th of December 1927 in the Bronx, New York. His parents were Albert and Ophelia Glattman, both practicing Jews. 
He was their only child. His father Albert ran his shop in the Bronx. From early childhood, parents noticed that their child behaved strangely. He would giggle for no reason, or cry excessively over trifles, rarely showing interest in anything particular. He had problems concentrating on anything, and from time to time disconnected from everything, plunging into thoughtfulness. His father tried spanking him to rouse his son out of his withdrawn state. Unsurprisingly, corporal punishment did not help matters at all. In 1930, the Glatmans moved briefly to Denver, Colorado, then returned to New York as Albert did not manage to get his business going in Colorado as he had in New York. In 1931, when Harvey was less than four years old, his parents caught him doing a strange activity in the children's room. Harvey had tied a string to his penis put the other end of the string in a box, and leaned back against the string, thus pulling his penis. His sexual preoccupation with ropes would follow him for the rest of his life. Neighbors and acquaintances of the Glatmans saw nothing particularly odd about young Harvey. He seemed to be a shy and dutiful boy. At the age of five, in 1932, Harvey had his tonsils and adenoids removed. In 1933, Harvey began school and seemingly functioned well enough with the other small children. In 1938, his parents would be saddened and shocked to discover that their son's odd toddler behavior had worsened over the years. One day they came home to find their ten-year-old son unconscious but breathing in his room. His neck was swollen and had rope burns. He was naked from the waist down, and a rope hung from the ceiling. His father managed to wake his son up and admonished him for masturbating, saying that it would cause him to have acne. The parents decided it would be good for their son with a change, so the family once more moved to Denver, Colorado, where the Glutmans moved in with Rosalie Gold, Ophelia's sister. There, Harvey went to school until his senior year. At school, Harvey Glutman was a quiet and dutiful student, had a high intelligence, and did well in many subjects. But he was shy around girls, and often endured ridicule from other boys about his large protruding ears and protruding teeth. As he entered puberty, he also developed a severe case of acne, just as his father had warned him. This would not help with the incessant bullying. He was given the nicknames Weasel and Chipmunk. Harvey never walked with a group of classmates after school, did not participate in any games, and was never invited to parties. Instead, he always hurried home alone, where he began to play with his rope. His favorite pastime was tying a rope around his neck, throwing the other end over the pipe and pulling it while masturbating. Self-strangulation with orgasm gave enhanced pleasure and satisfaction. 
He had learned from his first experience that he had to control the rope so as not to pass out and be discovered. At the age of twelve, Harvey Glattman began to tire of such a lonely sadomasochistic role-play at home, and he expanded the range of actions, finding himself exciting new entertainment. Many people back then left the doors of their houses unlocked when they were away for a short while. Harvey thus entered houses, walked through them, entered strangers' bedrooms and bathrooms, and his imagination was inflamed. He stole various small objects, even if he did not need them, in order to take something with him as a keepsake. And one day he caught the eye of a small twenty-six caliber pistol left by the owner in the kitchen, and Harvey took it. Soon after, having begun entering strangers' houses, Glatman started down the road so many other serial killers have. He started stalking women. Once he discovered a woman or girl he fancied, he would follow her, without her knowing it, often for a very long time. As he did so, he would concord elaborate fantasies in his head about what he would do to her if they were alone. And soon enough, the threshold between fantasy and fiction broke. One day Glattman saw a woman on the street that he liked, and he followed her. She went to her house and entered, closing the door behind her. He climbed the back stairs and climbed in through the window. He found her in the bedroom. At gunpoint he forced her to obey. With a rope, which he always carried with him, he tied her hands and gagged her mouth with some kind of rag. Then he began to touch her body, exploring it. He would place his hand beneath her panties and use his fingers to penetrate her vagina, gaining great pleasure from her fear and humiliation at his hands. But this first foray into sexual assault did not include full-blown penis into vagina rape. After molesting her with his fingers, he would leave, telling the woman that if she talked, he would return and kill her. Glattman had never felt so fulfilled as after his first attack. Soon he began to act so regularly. Sometimes he made a tired woman lie next to him and demanded that she act as though she gained pleasure from the fact that he tied and touched her. For some reason, none of the women he attacked reported their attacker. Perhaps they had taken his threats seriously. Perhaps they were embarrassed. Now, before you balk at such a statement, remember that this was the late 1930s. The idea of rape and sexual assault was very, very different from our own modern society. Statements such as, she brought it upon herself, and, well, what was she wearing, and she probably secretly wanted it, was very common. For a woman to be raped, especially by a juvenile such as Glattman, entailed high risk of her being shunned, ridiculed, and or blamed by her friends and family. Meanwhile, at school, Glattman was seemingly improving greatly. 
He became active in the Boy Scouts of America in 1942 at the age of 15, started learning musical instruments, took up photography as a hobby and got a job as a delivery boy. During 1944-45, when the 17-year-old Glackman was in high school, he accelerated his sexual criminal activity. He also stole another gun, this time a 38 caliber revolver. He continued breaking into women's homes and sexually assaulting them, still without fully raping them. He had also started randomly stopping women on the street, robbing them using his gun. When his parents asked him why he didn't return home right after school, he replied that he had participated in extracurricular activities. On the 4th of May, 1945, Glatman repeated his by now favorite pastime, tied up, gagged, and robbed three women at once in the Capitol Hill area of Denver, one of whom was named Eula Jo Hand. On the 18th of May, police caught him in the act of breaking into the apartment of Elma Hamum through a window. In his pockets, they found a length of rope and a 25 caliber pistol. He was arrested. He confessed to numerous burglaries from other people's homes, but remained silent about sexual harassment. He was first imprisoned, but he stayed there for only three days. Ophelia's mother made his bail, set at $2,000, and her son was released. But a trial was still to be held in the case of the thefts from houses. Glatman was never good with impulse control, and without even waiting for the trial, on the 15th of July, could not resist and repeated his actions, but with some changes. To protect himself, he now did not break into the house, but instead kidnapped an attractive woman named Noreen Laurel from the area in which she lived and tied her up, took her in a car to the outskirts of Boulder, located 40 kilometers northwest of Denver, to a place called Sunshine Canyon and the Sunshine Canyon Drive of the same name. There he did his usual modus operandi of tying her up and groping her, but without actually raping her for then to let her go. Noreen went to the police station where she recognized Harvey Glatman from one of the photos in the catalogue. Two days later, on the 17th of July, he was again detained and imprisoned in Boulder. He spent a week in jail and was again released, this time on a $5,000 bail on the 23rd of July. He was sent for examination to the Colorado State Psychiatric Hospital in Denver, where he spent more than a month, from the 31st of July to the 8th of September, 1945. There, a Dr. Hilton diagnosed Harvey as schizophrenic, or at that time, split personality. Dr. Hilton further described Glatman as sullen, morose, and disrespectful, and as someone who felt everyone was against him. On the 27th of September, only days after his release from psychiatric hospital, 
Glattman committed his favorite criminal act with two women in the Park Hill area of Denver. While assaulting a third victim in her house, he was unlucky. The woman screamed, broke free, and ran out of the house. As a result, three days later, on the 30th of September, he was arrested for the third time and imprisoned in Denver. A week later, on the 8th of October, Glattman was again referred to a psychiatric clinic for no more than ten days. His trial finally commenced on the 19th of November in Denver. Harvey Glattman pleaded guilty to an episode in the Capitol Hill area with Eula Joe Hill and others. The only witness on the part of the defense was Dr. Hilton, who recommended treatment with shock therapy by injecting insulin. Exactly one week later, on the 26th of November, the trial continued in Boulder with the addition of the episode with Noreen Laurel to the case. On the 1st of December, a sentence was passed. He was to serve from one to five years in prison. On the 5th of December, five days before his 18th birthday, Glattman became a Colorado prison inmate. In prison, Harvey Glattman had exemplary behavior and worked in a repair shop. Ophelia again made efforts outside prison on his behalf, as a result of which her son received parole after serving less than the minimum term, eight months, and was released on the 27th of July, 1946. First thing to happen then was that his mother took Glattman to a psychiatrist to prevent him from repeating his crimes. Doctors advised Glattman to socialize, to fit into society, especially women, and overcome alienation and fear of the female sex. Examples given was to go to dances. Glattman did not take his advice to heart. At all. Meanwhile, not all criminal cases were closed in Denver, and Ophelia decided to move her son to New York, where they lived with a family for several years during Harvey's childhood, and he was also born in the Bronx. His mother wanted her son to dramatically change his life, to start living separately, to work, to be among new people, to build his future. She personally transported him to New York, helped him to rent an apartment, get a job as a TV repairman, using his prison experience and making sure that Harvey took a new bright path. Then she returned home to Denver to her husband Albert. However, the new bright path turned out to be darker than the previous one. As soon as his mother left, Glattman again chose to continue his downward spiral of sexual violence. Already having experience in intimidating victims with a pistol, he bought a toy pistol, very similar to the real one, had a rope with him, and added a folding knife to his kit. And so it was that on the night of the 17th of August 1946, in one of the back alleys of New York, 
Glatman attacked a couple on their way home. The man's name was Thomas Starrow. The woman was Doris Thorne. Threatening with a pistol, he forced the victims to step under the trees. There he tied both of them, took the wallet from Thomas's pocket, and then leaned on Doris and began to feel her body. He was so carried away that he forgot about everything and did not notice how the man managed to free himself from the ropes. Thomas came up behind Glatman, who was fondling his companion, and pulled him away by the shoulders. Glatman twisted around, drew his knife, slashed Thomas on the shoulder, and started to run. He was so scared that he ran for a long time until he was tired, then decided not to even return to his New York apartment but immediately hide from the city and no longer mess with men. Everyone knows that New York is not the capital of the United States, but it is not even the capital of the state of New York. The capital of this state is the city of Albany, in which the big airs, dirty hair and horn-rimmed glasses of Harvey Glatman who arrived in this city on the first train after fleeing, surfaced. There he also rented an apartment and began courting the neighborhood in search of attractive women. The first victim in Albany was nurse Florence Hayden, who was heading somewhere for her work at night, to a hospital or to a patient. On Main Avenue, Glatman grabbed her, dragged her into a secluded spot, threatened with a fake pistol, and forced her to let her hands be tied. But while he was doing this, he could not hold the pistol. Florence began to struggle and scream loudly. Glatman immediately ran away, and a nurse told the police that she thought he was more scared than she was. The very next evening, on Hollywood Avenue, Glatman attacked two women walking together. Evelyn Burge and Beverly Goldstein, whom he robbed and beat up. Like nurse Florence Hayden, they reported his appearance to the police, and a description of the criminal was drawn up according to the joint testimony of the three women. Two days later, the 25th of August 1946, a street patrol detained Harvey Glatman, who was following a woman on the street. They found a toy gun knife and rope with him. The frightened Glatman confessed to everything and was imprisoned for the second time in the prison of the city of Albany. And soon his previous cases in Denver were revealed. In addition, he was identified as the attacker of Thomas Starrow and Doris Thorne in New York. His parents, Albert and Ophelia, were shocked by the news. They believed that Harvey was completely rehabilitated and was leading a normal human life in New York. His mother again rushed to rescue her son, but since he was already a repeat offender, her efforts were unsuccessful. At a trial held on the 10th of October, he was sentenced to five to ten years at the Elmira Reformatory. On the 24th of October, he was transferred to the rehabilitation center in the small town of Elmira, New York. He spent almost two years there. 
During this time, psychiatrists examined him in detail. The diagnosis read, and I quote, a psychopathic personality of the schizophrenic type, having perverted sexual impulses as the basis for criminal actions. End quote. Glattman was transferred to Sing Sing Prison in New York on the 8th of September 1948, where he spent a further two years. On the 27th of November 1950, a judge dismissed the Noreen Laurel incident and ruled that Glattman could be released from Sing Sing Prison. This took place on the 16th of April 1951. But before Glattman was released, he was immediately arrested and again imprisoned for open charges in three episodes back in 1946. Two of them were rejected. One was suspended, and finally, two weeks later, on the 2nd of May 1951, 23-year-old Harvey Glattman was finally released. But his parole had some conditions. Following these conditions, he returned to his parents in Denver, since he was to be in the care of his mother. He also had to undergo an examination by a psychiatrist, have a job, be under the supervision of a court, report to the police every month. He did all this and changed a number of random professions. In 1952, his father Albert died of diabetes and relations with his mother deteriorated, after which Glattman rented an apartment and began to live separately. In 1953, the period of supervision by a psychiatrist ended, and in September 1956, the entire period of police supervision, the fulfillment of conditions set by the court, and monthly checks came to an end. Over these last few years, Harvey Glattman did not commit his favorite crimes. And now, having received complete freedom after many years of abstinence, in January 1957, he, by now a grown-up 29-year-old man, rushed to the other end of the country, to Los Angeles. There, in sunny California, among the girls striving for the glory of Hollywood stardom, he became a killer. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have our burdens to bear, dear listener, and as a man, I was and am often told to suck it up, keep calm, and carry on. Normally, good advice in many situations. But never talking about what bothers you is not healthy. Therapy is great to get things off your chest, to vent, and best of all, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Everyone needs someone to talk to, even psychopaths, even your humble host. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash serialkiller today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash serialkiller. In Tinseltown, Glatman found himself as a kid in a candy store. He found that small modeling agencies for a fee of $20 an hour provided their female models for shooting to photographers, and moreover, these girls were ready to pose in any form and even undress. To begin with, Glatman provided himself with the necessary essentials. He began to work as what he knew how, as a repairman for televisions, which were then becoming fashionable and widespread. Glatman did not get rich on this business, but managed to rent a one-room apartment on a quiet street, bought a black second-hand Dodge Cornet, an expensive roller-cord camera with the ability to zoom, and equipped with a tripod, and a Browning thirty-two caliber pistol. And in order not to introduce himself by his real name, he came up with the pseudonym Johnny Glenn. In the summer of 1957, this same Johnny Glenn received from one of the agencies the phone number of model Judy Ann Dull, who at the age of 19 was already divorced and tried to sue her husband for child custody. She needed money, including for legal expenses. Glatman invited her to appear for a crime magazine, allegedly. She agreed especially since they agreed to do a photo shoot at her home. He asked her to wear a tight skirt and a sweater, and on the 1st of August he came to her address, but he immediately suggested they do the shoot in his studio. She reluctantly agreed, got into his car, and Glatman drove Judy to his apartment. As he warned, the photographs were intended for an article about girls who were kidnapped into slavery, and therefore he would have to tie her up and shoot it like that. Having tied Judy up, Glatman took a silver browning out of his pocket and began to give commands in what positions to stand and what emotions to portray, curiosity, fear, and so on. Having finished photographing, Glatman said, and I quote, Submit or die. The girl obeyed. Then he raped her several times. This time he did not stop at fingering her. 
This time he committed full-on, brutal, vaginal rape. After that, he sat the still-tied-up Judy next to him on the sofa and began to watch his favorite comedy TV show on TV. Late in the evening, at 22.30, Glattman told the model that he would let her go, but since he needed time to hide, he would take her away and drop her out of the car, and by the time she got to the nearest phone, he would be far away. Judy had no choice but to agree. He took her out of the house, put her in his car, took her onto the highway, and drove her towards the city of San Bernardino, a hundred miles from Los Angeles, past Benning and Palm Springs. They reached a desolate spot in the Riverside County, lit only by the stars. Here Glattman stopped the car and pulled Judy through the open door. At first, he pretended to untie her, and she sighed with relief. But then, with a sharp movement, he twisted the rope around her neck, pulled it around her belly, and tightened it on her ankles. He pulled the rope as tight as possible. Judy groaned in pain. He was bending her body backwards, and soon there was a loud crack as he broke her back. She passed out from the extreme pain, and he proceeded to strangle her to death. But still, Glattman was not satisfied. Before leaving, he took his camera out of the car and took a series of flash shots, positioning the dead body in different ways, shifting arms and legs in one way or another, bending and unbending knees. This was the first murder of Harvey Glattman. The second took place seven months later, on the 9th of March, 1958. Under the assumed name George Williams, he joined the Patty Sullivan Lonely Hearts Club in Los Angeles, founded by a woman named Patty Sullivan. There, he met 24-year-old Shirley Ann Bridgeford. She was divorced raised two sons and was looking for a man who would be better than her ex-husband. George Williams, a.k.a. Harvey Glattman, set a date with Shirley Ann for the evening of Friday the 7th of March. At 1945, they met at his home. He referred to a headache and said there would be no dancing, instead suggesting spending the weekend together outside the city, heading south to the Pacific coast and having lunch the next day somewhere along the way. Shirley liked the idea. It is not known whether she liked the plain, stunted and lop-eared Glattman, a.k.a. Williams himself, but perhaps after a divorce from the father of two children at her age, she wasn't picky. Glattman himself, as he later admitted, did not plan to commit a second murder and rape. Shirley Ann Bridgeford seemed to him a sweet girl, not like Judy Ann Dull, who undressed for money and posed for unfamiliar men. He also thought about her two children. However, his deviant sexual urges overruled any moral qualms he might also have. The night passed. Saturday came. 
Glattman and the victim left Los Angeles County and ended up in San Diego County. There, they dined in the coastal town of Oceanside and drove on. It was already the 9th of March, when, not far from Anza Park and the Viacito Mountains, Glattman took his car onto a dirt road and along it drove out onto a sandy off-road. There were no people or cars around. Aiming a barrel of a thirty-two caliber pistol at Shirley, he ordered her to get out of the car and undress. She asked him not to do this, but he insisted. Having bound her, he raped her, and then began to photograph her dressed and naked in various positions and depict various emotions. He then made her wait for the sun to rise, to take a series of photographs in natural light. It is one of these photos that have become so famous on the Internet. After that, he strangled his victim to death by tightening the rope around her neck from behind, like a garrote. Being strangled this way is extremely painful. It takes a long time for the rope to cut off air and blood circulation to the brain, and until that occurs, the victim is conscious and feels everything in crystal clarity. After the murder, Glattman, like the first time, took several more photographs of the already dead body, arranged in different ways. Four months later, on the 24th of July, 1958, Harvey Glattman killed his third and final victim, posing as a freelance illustrated magazine photographer with the fictitious name Frank Wilson. He ordered a girl for a photo shoot from a modeling agency. He offered to pay in cash, and the agency did not refuse. Although in such cases, everyone understood that the photo session was likely to be pornographic. The main thing was that the client was paying money. The girl also used a pseudonym, Angela Rogers. In fact, her name was Ruth Mercado. Like Glattman's previous victim, she was 24 years old. But unlike both previous victims, she was unmarried and had no children. Months earlier, she had arrived in Los Angeles from New York. Unable, like most girls who tried their luck, to become a famous actress, she had to become a second-rate model in one of the many agencies, which allowed her to pay for the apartment and have the means to live. She was not going to become a prostitute, but she was ready to pose in the nude and curry favor with photographers who paid money. Photographer Frank Wilson drove his Dodge Cornette to her agency address. Immediately from the doorway, he threatened her with a pistol and ordered her to go inside. In the bedroom, he ordered her to undress, tied her up, touched her body, and said that he just wanted to have sex with her, which he did for the next hour. Having finished, the little lop-eared and unattractive photographer offered to go out of town for a picnic. It was already night, but Ruth could not refuse the rapist with a weapon. Leaving only her wrists tied and threatening with a pistol, 
Glattman put Ruth in his car, and they started off. He took the third victim to the same place as the second, to San Diego County, past the city of Oceanside, but to a different place in the desert. And then everything was as before. He dropped the girl on the sand, tied her, ordered her to depict different emotions, and took different poses, clicking the shutter of his roller-cord camera with a flash. Then he tightened the rope and strangled Ruth Mercado. She fought desperately, and even managed to knock him off his feet, but this did not save her. He overpowered her, and holding her down on the sand and dirt, he slowly garroted her to death. After she was dead, Glattman took a few more pictures. Then he dragged the corpse under a tree. He did not deliberately bury or hide the body, so that coyotes could gnaw at it and thereby make it difficult to identify. Satisfied, he returned home. He was not destined to kill any more women, but he tried. After three successful murders, Glattman became drunk with the idea that he was untouchable. On the 27th of October, 1958, he turned to Diane Studio, a more expensive and prestigious agency than the previous ones, located on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles. For a fee of up to $30 an hour, this agency provided female models for filming, not only in magazines, but also on the then-developing television, for example, in commercials. Harvey Glattman, introducing himself as Frank Johnson, first wanted to order, no less, the owner of the studio, Diana, who also often took pictures with various photographers. But, being an experienced businesswoman, she did not fall for the stranger with the disheveled hair and an unpleasant odor from the body. Citing busyness, she suggested that he take a new girl, Lorraine Vigil, who got a job in her studio the previous week and had never filmed. She also offered him a filming location in the pavilion of her studio. Glattman agreed. He got Lorraine's address and left, and Diana called her ward and warned her. I quote, Be careful with this loser. He is not a professional, but only pretends to be one. And he's a creepy guy. Do you understand me? End quote. Lorraine Vigil understood her mentor, and when, according to the traditional Glattman scheme, after the meeting the two of them drove in his car in a completely different direction from where the studio was located, Lorraine told him that they were not going there. Glattman replied that he forgot to tell her that, supposedly, another client was assigned to Diana's studio at this time so they were going to his personal studio for photography in Anaheim, Orange County. When they passed Anaheim, Lorraine was indignant, and Glattman, having already thrown off the mask, roared at her to shut up. It was already dark, and the car pulled away from the Tustin Ranch Road and stopped. 
Glatman pulled out a pistol, ordered the girl to stretch out her arms, and began to tie her up. While doing this, he had to put down the gun, and Lorraine began to resist and fight. In the heat of the struggle, Glatman grabbed the pistol again and fired at random. The bullet pierced Lorraine's skirt and, luckily, only grazed her thigh. Glatman hesitated from the roar of uh, the shot in the car and let go of Lorraine for a moment. She seized the moment, snatched the pistol from his hand, kicked the door open and jumped out onto the gravel. Then two approaching headlights of a car appeared on the road and it turned out to be a police patrol. The car stopped. Two policemen got out of it. Lorraine Vigil ran to them and threw the pistol she had in her hand on the ground in front of them. So it was that Harvey Glatman was arrested. During the night interrogation, he wanted to fall asleep. But the officers who interrogated him did not allow this, shining a lamp in his face. At first he denied everything. The police had information about the missing girl models. Some of them disappeared according to the same scheme, after they were ordered by a certain photographer. Glatman was told that he fits the description of the man who took Judy Ann Dull and Shirley Bridgeford somewhere. He was directly asked, What have you done with them? Where are they? They told him about the rope found in his car and his pistol. Of course, Lorraine Vigil herself told everything about what happened. There were also cases of Glatman's bondage and sexual harassment in Denver and New York. All this was presented to him. The psychological pressure did not abate, and as a result, he dropped his head on the table, burst into tears, and confessed everything. On the 31st of October, 1958, Harvey Glatman was charged with the murders of Shirley Bridgeford and Ruth Mercado. Judy Dull's murder was never charged. Glatman was not immediately imprisoned. Before that, they began to take him to the places indicated by him to find the corpses or remains of the killed models. Even in the night, as was the case with the victims, he remembered and found these places well. Of Shirley Bridgeford, only a brown coat and part of a skeleton remained. The other bones were taken away by hungry, wild animals. In hot climates, the body decomposes faster. And after all, many months had passed. Then a police car with officers and Harvey Glatman headed to the place of murder of Ruth Mercado. Her skeleton was almost completely preserved. Even tufts of hair were preserved on the skull. After the night, the next day, Glatman and the detectives arrived at the scene of Judy Ann Dull's murder. But her remains were not there at all. Only scraps of clothing lay scattered about. On the 3rd of November, the trial of Harvey Glatman began, but it did not last long, because Glatman immediately made a frank confession, perhaps hoping for the court's leniency. 
though he was warned that everything said could be used against him. In the county sheriff's office, the killer told two detectives on tape the story of his life. He told of his abnormal sexual desires, how a thirst for murder was brewing in him, how he killed three girls and how he intended to but failed to kill the fourth. The press at the time gave him the nickname Lonely Hearts Killer. Soon the 69-year-old Ophelia Glattman flew to California and on the 12th of November met her son in prison. Leaving the visiting cell and the prison building with tears in her eyes, she told reporters that Harvey was not vicious but sick. This idea was seized upon by the killer's lawyer, who insisted on the need not to execute his ward but to send him to a psychiatric examination. The witnesses for the prosecution, especially relatives of the mother of two children, Shirley Bridgeford, and the surviving victim Lorraine Vigil, argued aggressively for the court not to heed such pleas. And so it was, that on the 16th of December, 1958, Harvey Glattman was sentenced for the murder of two girls he killed in San Diego County, Shirley Bridgeford and Ruth Mercado. The choice was between life imprisonment and the death penalty. The court chose the latter, to which Glattman stated, and I quote, It's better this way. I knew this is the way it would be. End quote. He was sent to death row at San Quentin Prison. It is the oldest prison in California, built in 1852. It also carries out the death penalty. In the middle of the 20th century, it had a gas chamber, which was later replaced by lethal injection. Harvey Glattman was on death row for less than a year. He was deprived of everything that could resemble his beloved rope and from which he could hang himself. His 32nd birthday was about three months away and on the 18th of September, 1959, after 10am, he was executed in the gas chamber. Now, there is a certain gruesome poetic justice to Glattman's fate, considering the absolute agony and terror he inflicted upon his victims, the way he met his end was far from humane. Execution by use of cyanide gas had been used in the USA since 1924. It is the rarest form of execution in USA, but the state that has used it the most is California. The procedure went as follows. Glattman was brought from his cell on death row and walked toward the death chamber in which there stood an airtight gas chamber. Inside, he was strapped to a straight-backed chair. Below the chair rested a pail of sulfuric acid. A long stethoscope was fixed to Glattman's chest so that a doctor outside the chamber could pronounce death. Once everyone except Glattman 
left the chamber, the room was again sealed. The warden gave a signal to the executioner, who flicked a lever that released crystals of sodium cyanide into the pail below the chair. This caused a chemical reaction that released hydrogen cyanide gas. Glattman was, as was protocol, instructed to breathe deeply to speed up the process. It is unknown if he did or not. Usually, prisoners did not adhere to the advice and instead tried to hold their breath and struggle. Glattman did not lose consciousness immediately. Instead, his calm demeanor changed to that of extreme horror, pain, and strangling. His eyes bulged out of his head, his skin turned purple, and he began to drool in addition to moans of pain. In some cases, the execution method caused such spasms in the condemned that bones broke. According to records, Glattman took twelve minutes to die. Undoubtedly twelve minutes of absolute hell on earth. And with that, we come to the end of the saga of Harvey Glattman, a.k.a. the Glamour Girl Slayer, a.k.a. the Lonely Hearts Killer. Next episode, number 159 in number will feature a fresh serial killer expose. So, as they say in the land of radio, stay tuned. Finally, I wish to thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like this podcast, you can support it by donating on patreon.com slash theserialkillerpodcast, by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, facebook.com slash theskpodcast, or by posting on the subreddit The SK Podcast. Thank you. Good night. Good luck. Thank you.